Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Top of the Saturday morning to you right here. Brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Of course, this is the Passball Show. I'm your host, John Pielli. For the next two hours, we're going to be getting into a bunch of things going on with baseball. Um, in a little bit, I'm going to catch up with former Braves left-hand pitcher, Micah Bowie, who pitched for several teams over about an eight-year career. Uh, I do have a little bit of a treat in the second hour. If you're a Mets fan, I spent some time uh, speaking with uh, several players and the manager of the Savannah Sand Nets, the Mets South Atlantic League team. And uh, the whole second hour is going to be dedicated to several interviews and a whole little uh, insight to the perspective of what's going on in their season and a team that's uh, very much ahead in their division in the South Atlantic League. And, of course, a team that features uh, Mets' number one draft pick from last year, Dominic Smith, uh, the draft pick from a couple years ago, shortstop Gavin Sacchini, and several others. And Dominic Smith and Gavin Sacchini are amongst the guests that I'm going to be speaking with in the second hour. Uh, Just a little reminder, a couple things I'm going to touch up on, but uh, anything you want to throw my way, just tweet at me, at John underscore PLA, as we keep the program interactive. I'm going to break down the career of Bartolo Colon a little bit because I think a lot of people forget about Colon's dominance in the latter part of the 90s and the early part of the 2000s. And, of course, that stretch that he had when he was hurt and he really was ineffective or not really part of a major league team's rotation through a balance of about five years. And, of course, his comeback and what you've seen over the last couple of years, particularly last season with Oakland. I'm also going to talk a little bit about Uh, the Baseball Writers Association of America. And I I haven't touched on that in a little while, but um, I want to bring in a unique perspective in regards to why no players in Major League Baseball history have never got 100% of the vote. And I have a unique perspective on that. If uh, you look back at the history 
of the Baseball Writers Association of America and a Hall of Fame in its first year in 1936. I got a couple points I want to bring up there. I also want to talk a little bit about a catcher for the Boston Braves in 1914 by the name of Hank Gowdy and his impact not only on Major League Baseball history, but American history. And I'm going to talk a little bit about one of the Chris Youngs. And, you know, whether it's good or bad, you know, I'll let you know. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But in the meantime, what I'm going to do is play the interview that I recorded with former Major League pitcher Micah Bowie. And Micah was drafted by the Atlanta Braves in the eighth round of the 1993 draft, made his Major League debut in 1999, and ended up pitching six years in the Major Leagues. Pitched for Atlanta, the Cubs, the Athletics, and was part of the Oakland Athletic team, the Moneyball team of 2002, which obviously... In a movie that, of course, had Brad Pitt in it. Over the course of his career, he also pitched for the Washington Nationals and the Colorado Rockies. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League pitcher Micah Bowie. Yes, pitched in uh, Major Leagues for several years and now runs a baseball academy out in Texas. And that's Micah Bowie. Micah, John Pielli over in New Jersey. I appreciate you having a couple minutes. Yeah, it's pretty good, man. It's uh, starting to warm up, so it looks like summer is on its way. Uh, Michael, before hey, before uh, before I ask you a couple questions about your playing career, tell us a little bit about the academy you got going on in Texas and everything you're doing with the with the young kids. Well, I ended up playing baseball back in 2008. Uh, sort of my own jumped in and uh, decided to hit the out here in Texas. Uh, I, I was seeing temperature injuries from kids while I was playing, and uh, you know, I just wanted to do something about it. I've gone through Tommy John, I had a number of injuries in the major leagues, and when I got done playing, I said, you know, all the information I wanted on, you know, how I hurt myself, how mechanics, you know, play such a huge part in throwing. Uh, me and my friend of my team got together, and we got a baseball complex out here where you want to train kids how to play baseball, how to throw, proper mechanics, swing hit. And then uh, you've got the prospect side to come down and play tournaments. And, you know, get a kid to play baseball here in the best facilities in the nation. Right? Okay. Now, going back to when, when you played, do you think that had possibly you known a couple things when you were younger? Do you think that could have prevented, let's say, your Tommy John surgery and some of the other injuries that you suffered throughout your career? Well, you know, definitely the knowledge is, is important and, and and being able to apply that knowledge. For me, uh, part of mine was overused. You know, you see a lot of guys right now, they're more out with quick. You know, they have, they come up to the big leagues, they're 21, 22, you see a lot of injuries. You know, well, for me, when these kids are that young, you know, a lot of that's probably more mechanical than anything. You know, there's also overuse, you know, whereas for me, you know, I was 27 years old, I've been pitching for 10 years of pro balls and winter balls, and, you know, you had to have a lot of breaks in there, and, you know, you're pitching through pole groins and, and muscle tears, and, there's a lot of other things that are always going on that are constantly affecting your mechanics, uh, at least for me at the major league level. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, knowing certain things about, you know, the elbow being too low or, you know, my weight being too far forward, dragging the shoulder, and, and some of those things that definitely helped me, uh, I think, stay a little bit healthier, a little bit longer. Yeah, now, do you, do you think it's that simple you know, in regards to, let's say, the mechanics, the way uh, the way a young pitcher delivers and gets used to throwing the ball? Are, are, those, are those type of adjustments that can be made at an early age, or is it, do you feel that uh, the maturity of a pitcher as they get a little older to maybe reach a certain age, it might have a little better chance of sticking? Uh, I honestly think that it's pretty much that simple. The better the mechanics, 
the more the kids can throw. Um, you know, there's to a point. There's always an overuse thing. You know, if a kid goes through growth spurt, he grows six inches in a year, which we see a lot of kids going through that. Well, there's going to be growing pains, and, you know, you know, they have the heel, the knees, the, the joints ache. You know, there, there's certain things that just come with kids that are growing. But outside of, of certain aspects, to do that. I, I believe it's very much so. Both kids learn how to throw properly. Um, you're, you can't eliminate 100% of injuries, but you can eliminate the things that are guaranteed to injure them. And so and that's really what we work on, taking away the red flags and the delivery so that, you know, if something does happen to them, which we unfortunately haven't had that in, in uh, five years, we don't really have any issues uh, because, you know, we really watch the kids, but we really want their form to be good that performance good, it supports the joints. If you support the joints, um, you can help prevent or at least cut down injuries. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Micah Bowie. Now, when it, when it comes down to it, are, is there one thing that you see or maybe you notice a, a, a kid or, or somebody throwing for the first time when you're, you're watching yourself that stands out as far as being maybe the number one thing that you're looking to correct or change or adjust? Um, you know, that, that's hard to make a transition to to you maybe when you were growing up um, who who taught you the mechanics uh, of pitching when when you were younger when you were first starting to establish yourself as a young kid well it was, it was great I had an older brother who my dad worked with much and uh, my older brother Ryan Zelbo, he was a great pitcher and he was really drafted by the Braves in 1993 you, you missed the first uh, was it their first season professionally through an injury what, what exactly happened there
to his baseball. So, uh, fortunately, uh, a guy by the name of Ralph Barr with the Braves, um, got the big out of Atlanta to, to kind of push him here through and make sure everything was fine. And, uh, they signed me and Dr. Campbell with Atlanta, who's a great friend of mine, been around a long time. Uh, a great doc. He saw me and said, Mike, you're going to be fine. I'll take a little bit. And then they got me in, uh, they signed me and I got with Stan A. who was a phenomenal trainer with the Braves for a long time. And, uh, Sammy nursed me back to health and got me going and then kind of the rest of the district. Yeah, of course, and you, you know you end up going through the Braves chain. You know you, you pitch. I'm sure at the time with a lot of uh, with a lot of good young pitchers, and you, you end up going through the chain. You end up making your major league debut in 1999. I'm sure that experience is something you'll never forget. Uh, I definitely never forget because uh, you know I worked out in Old Texas Stadium in Philadelphia, and uh, you know I, I was running out onto the field first time out on the mound. And, uh, you know, I've run across the turf, and of course, you know, I didn't know at the time that was a bad turf. You know, they're fixing to knock it down and do, do the new new Philadelphia stadium. But I'm running across, I've just been in AAA, and we've just been on little cow pasture turf. Uh, you know, around the like, man, this turf was awesome. Lord, the mound is so big, you know, everything was, it, it was amazing, that experience to get out there. And, uh, you know, that made league feel grow, and, uh, you know, I'm just very thankful that's good. No, no question. Once again, John Pielli here with Micah Bowie. You know, you know, talk a little bit about your 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 time in the major leagues because you ended up uh, you know having a chance to pitch for a couple different organizations a couple different times. Uh, what what would you say from your own mind stood out the most about your major league career? Well, I mean, there's a lot. One of the five different major league teams I pitched for. You know, the, the biggest, probably the biggest thing that stands out is just being with Oakland through Moneyball, that Moneyball time period. You know, getting called up early 2002, you know, pitching through that year, the 20-game win streak, we had our 10-year reunion uh, a couple, I guess a couple years ago now. But uh, going through that, you know, at the time when we set that record and, you know, we won those games, we didn't realize what a big deal it was. You know, and just playing, even, even throughout until my career was over, then we go back, you know, 10 years later and, you know, get together with Art Howe, uh, who's just amazing, he's an awesome manager, and uh, all the guys get together, Bradford and Sear Cam, you know, both and we have, we get together and, and uh, kind of go through, and we didn't realize what part of history that we were able to play so far uh, in the game of baseball, and it was just really amazing to go, man, that, that, we didn't realize how big of a deal it is to win 20 in a row to set that type of major league record for, all, you know, everything that we went through. Uh, yeah, that's probably one of the big things to stand out, uh, you know, throughout my career. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no question. I'll tell you, to be part of a 20-game winning streak at any level has to be outstanding because you think about the odds of being able to do that, you know, day in and day out to win five in a row. And then everything from up there, you know, within that game, you're you're rolling the dice that anything can go right, but anything can go wrong. And to have a chance to be part of a team that won that many games in a row, it's got to be an outstanding feeling, especially that you know the fact that it was able to happen at the major league level. Well, it was, and uh, it's kind of funny. You know, we lost the the 21st, and then I think we won 10 in a row after that. <laughs> I think we had a 32 day stretch of one loss. I mean, and uh, go through a month time period in the major league with only one loss. Uh, Oh, we had, we had a good time. You know, it was a great group of guys. It was a great time. And, you know, it was a great staff. And, you know, Billy did a great job assembling uh, a team that could work together. Um, you know, put egos aside. Everyone could go out there and play their part. And, you know, if you
through that year, they won 104 games or something. You know, we had a lot of role players and a lot of people who contributed. And that's one of the things sometimes the game misses these days. Most, most teams try to rely on one or two guys, but well, bottom line, it takes a whole team and everyone's got a part to contribute up there to be successful. Yeah, no question. I'll tell you what stands out about that team as well, in addition to, you know, the money vault philosophy and, of course, the, you know, the book and the movie and everything that's all involved in it, was, was the fact that there were significant players that were, were not re- re-signed or traded prior to that season. So there was a little bit of a shake-up in the clubhouse. Um, in your opinion, from being there, who do you think was, let's say, the veteran or the leader on that team, or did the guys that the other players kind of looked up to for, for guidance? Well, I gotta say, hands down, uh, you know, between Hudson, Mulder, Zito, uh, uh, Corey Lytle, you know, those guys were all great, but, you know, holy gosh, hands down, our closer came in, you know, we hanging out with him in the stand while he was in the clubhouse before the game, after, you know, Billy was, was one of those guys that, I mean, he was just amazing on the field, what he did. Uh, but Billy really was, he was a vocal leader, he was, he was funny, he kept the loose, he kept the light, you know, the time he was on the field just doing it day in, day out, you know, Justice is up there, I mean, we, we got a lot of guys that, you know, for me, I, I guess the nice thing to say, Billy Cox is one of the guys that, you know, you can look to, either when the eighth inning hit, you know, Billy, Billy was chomping at the bit to jump in that game and go in there, I mean, he wanted that baseball, he wanted to win that game, he wanted to steal a deal, and, uh, you know, the numbers from that year kind of prove it. Yeah, no question. And, of course, you know, the, the team you mentioned wins 104 games, makes it to the postseason when they face the Twins. Your memory, looking back, having a chance to pitch in that series, what comes to your mind when you think about the postseason of that year? Uh, two things come to my mind. Um, uh, and this was, this was kind of funny, but this was just one of the things I, I, I thought about the uh, Oakland Raiders were playing, you know, they built purpose out that stadium. So we had been gone. Uh, we came home from the playoffs, they pulled all the stands off the field and everything to get it back ready for baseball. And I couldn't believe uh, the damage that had been done to the field. I mean, they're painting, you know, spray paint on the field out there to make it look green. You know, it was kind of a, it wasn't, it wasn't the best out there on the surface, especially in the outfield. The only time a ball hit the ground, you know, it took off to the fence. There's pretty much no way to cut something off. It's almost been like asphalt out there. And you know, one of the things that, you know, the Twins had so much speed, you know, if they could just get the ball through the infield, you know, they were running. And that was one of the things the artists in that series, you know, the ball would just, it just kept going. It was hard to cut off those, those singles from being doubles and some of those doubles from triples. And, uh, and that was one of the things I think they just kind of heard of. You know, they, they were a truck team with the ball and running around and running. Uh, we're falling in Minnesota and in Oakland. Yeah, no question. Of course, you, know, you end up uh, pitching for the Athletics and as well as in the minors the next season, and then you get hit with the with the Tommy John injury, and of course you end up having to have the operation. You know, at this point, you're around 29 years old. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience, and uh, you know, going through the rehab and getting yourself back on a professional baseball field. Tommy John was uh, my, you know, I had gone through things about pro bowling, you know, and maybe my, my my situation was unique, but I doubt it. I mean, you end up pitching, and we're trying to work through a lot of injuries, you know, there's always aches and pains, there's always things going, especially when you're going day in and day out, uh, playing wear ball, you know, you're, you're fighting and scratching to do everything you can to keep going. So, uh, you know, I, I battled through a lot of things with my elbow over time, and, and finally it, it just had enough. 
And then when I got Tommy John, it was, uh, you know, I didn't know if I'd ever play again. I didn't know if I'd come back from it. I, I didn't know where I would be. Um, you know, I knew there were a lot of guys who were recovering really well, but, uh, you know, so whenever I came back, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And uh, it was amazing that when I came back, you know, for the first time in, that I could remember throwing a baseball in the last six, seven, eight years, I still felt pain. And throwing without pain was was a unique sensation for me. My velocity went up, my stuff got better, and I, I, it took a little bit of time, but once I got used to it, wow, this is awesome. And I was, I was able to go out there and, uh, and pitch for a few more years, more time. I actually pitched longer than Bingley back from my Tommy John before, and uh, yeah, it, was, it was nice. No, I tell you what stands out is you know you come back with the uh, the Washington Nationals in 2006 and you pitch pretty well as a reliever for them, and then the following season uh, they they have some some issues in the rotation and uh, you end up stepping in as a starter. Now you you would came, you would come up as a as a starter throughout the minor leagues and throughout your time in Atlanta. Was it was it a difficult adjustment going back to being a starter after being kind of removed a little bit from from starting in, in the majors? Yeah, it was awesome to go back in the rotation. I mean, I've got to thank Jim Bowden. He, uh, hey, Jim Bowden was great for me. He gave me a chance to come out after Tommy John. Uh, actually, coming off Tommy John surgery, I was still so good. Uh, ended up uh, doing a, another thing for my tear my lat muscle off my humerus on my arm. Uh, he nursed me through that following year and they gave me a chance and, and uh, to get back up there. And so, I, so we were playing against uh, Atlanta and started with down in the first inning and went out through, you know, 60 or 70 pitches, uh, right out the box. And I walk in the clubhouse the next day and, and, and just sitting there and I said, looked at him and I said, hey, you doing talk for a second? He's like, yeah. And I said, hey, you know what? I know we need a starter. I said, you know what? Just through 70 pitches. I pitched around me, can I give it a shot? And he goes, do you want to do that? And I said, heck yeah, please. And he said, well, here, let me give it a go. And uh, I got me out there, and uh, you now take it back in rotation, you know. Well, it was a tough year because I was throwing great, everything was going good. Um, but in San Diego, a little bit earlier than that, I had actually popped my groin and torn, torn, uh, torn my groin muscle off of uh, my attachment. I the rest of that year that way. And I ended up having surgery at the end of the year to sort of reattach part of my groin. Uh, back to the bone so that, uh, you know, I could pitch. But that one really was probably the injury that didn't end because at that point I came back and called out of the following year. But it just didn't have the same ability to drive off the mound that I had, uh, you know, before that surgery. All right, now, right before I let you go, Mike, and once again, thanks for the time. Tell us a little bit about your academy and just where, if, you know, if you happen to be in the Texas area, where you could find it and how, how people could get a hold of you. Well, it's real original. We call it the Blue Baseball Academy. Um, we're here in San Marcos, Texas. Uh, it's on a, it's at a complex here called the North Carolina Furniture Direct Farm Club. Um, the guy that loves baseball and the furniture company and built this awesome facility out here in Central Texas for kids. And so we've been in the North, I've been in North Philly. I handle the baseball and the training and, and aspects. Because and, uh, I, I love working with the kids. And uh, yeah, the last five years, it's, it's been an awesome part of the watching. Now these kids come through and get a chance to play in college. Got one of my kids, two of my kids have been drafted. One's playing in the Astros organization right now, Tyler Bruner. Um, but it's just a, so it's been really fun to watch kids develop and, and try to at least be a part of helping them get some opportunities to get a chance to, to maybe do something I got to do to experience major league baseball, professional baseball, or college baseball. And so uh, you know, we really enjoy it. God has been good. He's blessed us and. Uh, you know, hopefully we can pass that along to these kids. 
Yeah, no question. Listen, best of luck to what you're doing for your continued success and everything. Keep up the good work, and thanks for the time, Mike. Once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to do is take a break, and on the other side, we're going to get in everything going on with Bases Empty Blog. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, as we keep the program interactive. Right back after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is a family. Through one of the toughest years in my life, my ACS family stood beside me. My teachers were loving and supportive, and my friends shined God's love in different ways to make each day brighter. Atlanta Christian has a nurturing academic environment and is a second home to me. I am thankful for the school and family with which God has blessed me. Join us for Open House every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7, 24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station, MTR. Taste is empty blog. Go ahead, laugh. Laugh all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay? Taste empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Bases empty blog. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network, brought to you, of course, by JohnPielli.com. First thing I want to get into, and don't forget, uh, just we keep the program interactive. Tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. And like I said, we keep the discussion going, whether the program is Saturday mornings, 10 a.m. to noon. Uh, also uh, on the replay, Saturday evening, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Sunday morning, 4 a.m. to 6. And then Sunday night from 9 p.m. to 11. I, I wanted to talk a little bit because I, I, w- I was discussing this with a, with a buddy of mine. We we're talking about uh, the baseball writers and where the whole Hall of Fame ballot started. And of course... Uh, if you know your baseball history, you know about the first five players to ever be selected into baseball's Hall of Fame in 1936. And of course, that was Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Hannes Wagner, Walter Johnson, and Christy Mathieson. And you think, there, yes, maybe there were a couple other players that could have gone in the same time, guys like Tris Speaker and Cy Young. 
and of course after he retired Rod, Rogers Hornsby. So you know you see you know the evolution of the whole Hall of Fame voting process, and you know the first year it was just an honoring of what uh, were some of the best players of all time, and you know I think a lot of the writers that were voting at the time probably had no idea that it was going to turn into what it eventually has become. And, you know, if you wonder why a guy like Babe Ruth got 95.13% and Ty Cobb got just over 98%, uh, you, you may have a good reason to wonder why, because I don't think there's anybody that follows baseball or knows baseball or understands the history of baseball that, w- that wouldn't know that those two guys are absolutely Hall of Famers. And according to the Hall of Fame ballots, you know, 100% of the baseball writers did not think so. That being said, I do want to acknowledge the fact that the Baseball Writers Association of America, and particularly the Veterans Committee, has done an outstanding job honoring the, the best players to ever play in the game by, of course, getting them into the hall. And uh, for all these years later, the people that do the research and look back and study the stats and the impact that certain players had on the game to give them the credit and eventually getting them into the Hall of Fame. Sometimes players that have long since been deceased end up getting honored once it's discovered the impact that they've had on the game. I I really think that the 1936 ballot and the way it was set up was probably the hardest, the most difficult for these writers to end up putting the best players to ever play in a game in this different category. Because, you know, Prior to that, there had been some discussion about it, but until it actually happened, when it's decided that baseball was going to have a Hall of Fame where the best players to ever play in the game were going to be put on this echelon, on this, uh, you know, this podium, this platform, and kind of honored for what they've done to make Major League Baseball as great as it's been. I guess it would depend on when do you mark the origin of baseball or when did it start? Was it the 1850s or the 1870s when, you know, there was major leagues and there was a lot of baseball going on? Or you want to go back to the origins of baseball, whether you want to say it's 1840 or 1850 or whatever you think it is. But from whatever that time frame is until 1936, there was a lot of baseball. And if you want to honor from up until 1936, who was the best of of the best? You certainly have a lot of players to choose from. And I, I think you look at the 18, 1800s, the 1870s, the 1880s, the 1890s, and all the great players that played in that time, and none of them were really honored throughout the first several years of the Hall of Fame. And it really wasn't until Cap Anson uh, was inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame in 1939 that a player that certainly played in that era was completely honored. And, you know, for for the writers to pick who they thought was the best of all time certainly would have to do with who they, what they were looking at. I mean, a guy like Babe Ruth, who remember in 1936, we're just looking at the end of Babe Ruth's career. And for those writers, especially the old time writers, they were probably fans or understood the game better from the dead ball era than they did in a live ball era. So this guy, Babe Ruth, that's going out there being known for hitting all these home runs may not have been the best example of what baseball was uh, at that time. And obviously, you know, you're looking at 80 years later and you're looking at all these different years later and the Hall of Fame and the way it's come about. 
uh, we understand the impact on home runs and what the great home run hitters have meant to the history of Major League Baseball. But in 1936, remember, we're still in the blossoming, the blooming stage of home runs, which have really only been a major part of the game for the past 15 plus seasons. So you're looking at it from that perspective, I think you would understand why somebody, a veteran, an old-time writer, may not vote for Babe Ruth on the first year of the Hall of Fame ballot. Because in my opinion, the first year of the Hall of Fame ballot is huge. And it's not saying that any of these players, whether we're talking about Ruth or Cobb or Hannes Wagner or Walter Johnson or Christy Mathewson, it's not a matter of whether any of these five players were Hall of Famers. The issue was, all right, are they worthy enough to be in that first class. And you can't imagine a Hall of Fame without any of those five. So there's no way that I'm saying that none of them were worthy of being Hall of Famers. But maybe, just maybe, there was a writer or two that felt that one of those players did not belong in on the first year. Now, would they have voted for him the next year or in subsequent years? Odds are they probably would have. But they also have to keep in mind that the greatest of the greatest probably had a better chance of getting in than not getting in. So if there's if there are one or two or six or eight, however many uh, members of the Baseball Writers Association of America they were, uh, they were probably in the minority when it came to guys like Ruth and Cobb. And remember, Ty Cobb, as I've mentioned on several times in this program, and you know if you studied your baseball history, was a very hated man. You know, he was not only hated by teammates and, you know, opponents, he was hated by the writers too. So you figure there's a couple guys that are going to hold against Ty Cobb, the type of man he was and a relationship that they had with him, similarly to the way writers held uh, back guys like Eddie Murray or tried to hold back Eddie Murray and held back Jim Rice for so many years. Sometimes the relationship with the media, the baseball writers themselves, the guys that are doing the voting, uh, you know, it sounds a little petty, but, you know, the personal feelings are kept and you've seen it impacted in several different years as we've seen all these players come up and be eligible and voted for or not voted for for the Hall of Fame. So let me take a minute to summarize the, the voting the first year in 1936 of the first ever Hall of Fame ballot. It, of course, featured Ty Cobb, who got 98.23%. Ruth and Hannes Wagner both got 95.13%. Christy Mathewson got 90.71%. And Walter Johnson got 83.63%. Other great players like Tris Speaker, Napoleon Lajewey, and Cy Young didn't go in until the next year. Well, what about those who thought Speaker was as dominant as Cobb? Or Young, who, by the way, won more games than any pitcher in Major League Baseball history. Maybe some thought that his impact on what he did in Major League Baseball history was better than what Walter Johnson did or what Christy Mathewson did. And if that was the case, then that would explain why some of the writers did not vote for some of these players that are on there. Now, odds are... Those were the writers that slighted some of the first-year selected players. Could a writer have thought that Speaker, Cobb, Wagner, and Young should have been the first in? Maybe. Maybe some thought that Ruth was baseball and should have been the only one selected. Uh, if either one of them was the case by any writers, that would explain why the other players did not get 100% of the vote. Now, the sad thing about this, and I'm going to get to my point right now, is how the 1936 baseball writers vote has impacted and affected every other Hall of Fame ballot. The simple fact that Cobb or Ruth 
did not receive 100% of the vote the first time made writers think and subsequent writers in years and years gone by, if Cobb and Ruth did not get 100% of the vote, nobody should. And then it would get into the writer's head to a point where many writers would not vote for a player the first time they were eligible, thinking nobody should get 100%. And you can see how this would kind of spiral and eventually avalanche out of control. And I think it finally backfired when the Baseball Writers Association of America failed to give Joe DiMaggio the 75% needed to get in in 1954. He only got 66%. And since then, the bitching has been if Joe D didn't get in on the first vote, then X player should not get in on a first vote. And you can see how the politics and the silliness kind of just spirals out of control to a point where if you realize where the source of it was from, it, it doesn't really make any sense. And, you know, to say that because Joe D didn't get in on the first vote, then no player should get in. It's kind of silly. I think you want to analyze each player's career, put them up with the best players of all time, and then ask yourself, is this guy a Hall of Famer? And not say, is this guy a Hall of Famer three, four years from now or a Hall of Famer right now? Because I don't think that ever was the case. I think it's a simple, you're either in or you're not in. You're not, some players aren't in right away and other guys are in later on. It should be a case of he's either in or he's not in. Now, let me throw a little more confusion into this. A guy like Rogers Hornsby uh, was receiving Hall of Fame votes while he was still playing. Uh, DiMaggio himself, after missing the time due to the service of World War II, he received 0.04% of the vote in 1945. Many think the voting process, process has always started exactly five years after the player's careers has ended. Well, that has not always been the case. The whole voting process was screwed up by the writers nearly 80 years ago, and we still see the imprints of those mistakes today. Perhaps had a guy like Ruth or a Cobb or a Walter Johnson, who, let's be honest, there was no doubt that any of them are Hall of Famers if any one of them had gotten 100% of the vote. The DiMaggio thing probably doesn't happen. And if the DiMaggio thing does not happen, guys like Tom Seaver and Willie Mays and Nolan Ryan, Hank Aaron, Greg Maddox probably could have gotten 100% of the vote because the writers would say it's happened before. And I think part of the reason it got screwed up was because the early writers had no idea what they were getting into. They also had no idea what they did that what they decided would impact the game for the next 80 to 180 years. Perhaps they, if they had known, they could have looked at it differently. Similar to the first vote, it was obvious there was no question over whether the players were worthy of the Hall of Fame. All those in question were locks, as they represented some of the best to ever play the game. And the case of the 95% plus guys, did any goofy writer seriously think that that player would not be selected that year? Of their, of their mission. I, I think it's time for Baseball Runner Association of America to stop trying to keep a tradition alive. That was never meant to be a tradition. The tradition does not deserve to be alive. The first whole vote was not going to be perfect, so it shouldn't have been used as a precedence for all other votes. Maybe if more thought about it, there would be a chance that that tradition, which I have in quotes here, cannot be used against these other players. I think a player who is worthy of the Hall should have a chance to get 100% of the vote. However, it will not happen because of the silly politics that the baseball writers use to hold the deserving back, and in some cases to hold the deserving, to get 100% of the votes.
Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, brought to you by, of course, JohnPielli.com. We're going to stay a little historical. We're going to talk a little bit about Hank Gowdy, who was a World Series champion for the Boston Braves in 1914. And those of you who have followed your baseball history and know about the 1914 Boston Braves, uh, they were kind of that Cinderella story, that team that nobody thought would have a chance to go out there and compete for a World Series championship. And even when they won the National League pennant, uh, there was ridiculous odds against them that the Philadelphia Athletics would go out there and win another World Series championship. Remember, they had won in 1910, 1911, and 1913, so three of the prior four seasons. And obviously, the Athletics were heavily favored with that great team that Connie Mack had assembled uh, with guys like Stuffy McGinnis and Eddie Collins and Frank Baker and you know the guys that they had there, the Eddie Planks of the world. But they ended up winning the World Series, and Hank Gowdy, if there was a World Series MVP in 1914, would have won it. Um, he had 575 in a series, a double, a triple, a home run, and led the Braves to a victory. But uh, you know, if you look at Hank Gowdy for what he was as a player, um, one thing that stands out for him is the fact that he was the first Major League Baseball player to enlist in World War One. And that was in 1917, which happened to be after the best stretch of baseball of his career. Of course, it caused him to miss the entire 1918 season. He returned to Boston to play for the Braves in 1919 and stayed there until he was traded to the New York Giants in 1923. Gowdy stopped playing after the 1925 season. He would play in Major League games again for the Braves in both the 29 and 30 seasons when he was serving as a coach. Now, World War One. Gowdy saw action in the 2nd Brigade of the Ohio National Guard. He was also a member of what was considered the legendary 166th Infantry of the 42nd Division. After he finished serving he, he and he was finished playing, he joined the Braves coaching staff, like I said, in 1929 and stayed there through the 1937 season. He would join the Cincinnati Reds coaching staff and stayed there from 1938 to 1942. World War II breaks out. And Gowdy once again joins the military, this time as a captain in the U.S. Army. According to records, Gowdy is the only Major League Baseball player to serve in both world wars. While some named players get a lot of credit, and all of it is deserved, Gowdy did it twice, something that no others can likely say. I think it's been a sympathetic charge led by the, who, the before-mentioned baseball writers to get Gowdy into the Hall of Fame. The fact that he received votes in 17 years, in my opinion, is absurd. I understand that what he did for the country is incomparable, but it has nothing to do with what he did as a baseball player. I recently wrote a story about a Washington senator shortstop named Cecil Travis, which talked about how his career was completely destroyed by his service in the military. He was on pace to be a Hall of Fame player, but that chance was eliminated when he could not be the same player after coming back from World War II. In my opinion, Travis is more Hall of Fame worthy than Gowdy, but I agree that both players fall short of qualifications. For the record, the player who owns the record for the most times on a Hall of Fame ballot is Ed Roush, who played 18 years in the big leagues, including two in the Federal League in 1914 and 1915. He hit 321 for his career and had 2,376 hits while winning National League batting titles in 1917 and 1919. 
Of course, he was part of the 1919 Cincinnati Reds team that won the World Series in surprising fashion over the Chicago White Sox, only to find out that the White Sox were in on a fix with gamblers and through the World Series. Roush was on the Baseball Writers Association of America ballot for 19 seasons and was not selected. However, the, the reason that Gowdy holds the record for his 17 years being on the ballot is because Roush was finally selected in 1962 by the Veterans Committee into Baseball's Hall of Fame. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Just finishing up on a couple things here before we end the first hour right here on Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. I want to talk a little bit about Bartolo Colon, because those who look back, at the long pitching career of the current Mets right-hand pitcher, probably think he missed years before coming back onto the scene with the Yankees in 2011. However, he missed just the entire 2010 season. Now, he did average just 12 starts a season from 2006 to 2009. So, without including his rookie season of 1997, there are three distinct phases of uh, the, uh, the the very hefty right-hand pitcher's pitching career. From the years of 1998 to 2005, he was one of the top pitchers in all of the American League. Of course, he pitched half of the 2012 season in Montreal. And of course, those that remember the trade from the Cleveland Indians to the Montreal Expos remember the fact that he was traded for Grady Sizemore, Cliff Lee, and Brandon Phillips. And Omar Minaya, who was the general manager of the Montreal Expos, engineered what many say was one of the worst trades in baseball history in his defense. And I've been known as a Minaya defender. Uh, the Expos were just about on the verge of being contracted after that season. So the farm system, no matter how good it was, if the players were not going to be on that team anyway then he might as well have traded him and made a run for the pennant. It obviously didn't work out for the Expos that season, but Cologne did win 20 games that season, 10 for the Indians and 10 for the Montreal Expos. But uh, going back to what I was saying about the three phases, of course, from 2006 to 2010, he was injured. You can make the case that this was kind of an intermission to his career, and I think a lot of us uh, probably didn't see it that way. I think if you remember those times and – uh, the couple teams that he pitched for, uh, you probably thought that Cologne was just about done. The amount of innings that he averaged over the course of 98 to 2005, uh, maybe he was just finished. He just didn't have anything left. And you've seen many p of pitchers who averaged 200 innings a season from eight to 10 years just finally lose it all at once. And you're seeing it in the game now. Let's say a guy like CC Sabathia is a prime example. It's going to be very interesting to see what you get out of Sabathia over the next couple years. But back to Cologne, uh, he's certainly since his return to baseball with the Yankees in 2011, he has reestablished himself as a regular starting pitcher. However he did it, whether it was the stem cell transplant, human growth hormone, whatever performance-enhancing drugs he may or may not have been, been using, uh, he certainly parlayed the last couple of years into the two-year, $20 million contract he signed with the New York Mets. Now, if you're a fan of the Mets, you know, maybe you agree with the move, maybe you don't agree with the move, but that really has nothing to do with what I'm talking about now. We're talking about a pitcher who, at age 40, has reestablished himself as a regular Major League starting pitcher. Now, what I did in my blog entry, Bases Empty Blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing, 
is I separated the time frames that he pitched from 98 to 2005, and it included his rookie season of 97, which he didn't pitch very well, and he also made about 17 starts that year. Now, looking back, he had a phenomenal run from 98 to 2005. His record over that time, 135 and 75, a 384 ERA, making 261 starts. He also pitched 1,725 innings, among the most in all of baseball. He averaged 17 wins, 9 losses, 33 starts, and 216 innings pitched over those seasons. That included two 21 seasons and the AL Cy Young Award in 2005. The next stretch, which I hinted on before, what, was seemed, what seemed like the beginning of the end. Um, he, had, he made 10 starts after his Cy Young season in 2005 and 2006, he pitched to an over six ERA the next season in 2007, and of course he missed the whole 2010 season. Over the span of 2006 to 2010, Cologne was 14 and 21, a 518 ERA, and filled 47 starts, pitching just 257 innings. This came out to an average of three wins and four losses, and an average of nine starts and 51 innings each season. The beginning of Cologne's comeback, like I said, started when he signed a minor league deal with the Yankees prior to the 2011 season. He seemed to be the odd man out, losing the fifth starter battle in the rotation. By the third week of the season, though, Cologne was making starts, and after three relief appearances, he had earned a regular spot in the team's rotation. His first 11 starts, which spanned from April 20th to July 2nd, he was 6-2 with a 234 ERA while pitching 73 innings which came out to an average of just less than seven innings of start. Though he tired down the stretch of that season, he signed a deal with the Oakland Athletics for the 2012 season. He was solid, 10-9, 343 ERA and 24 starts, but his season was marred by a 50-game suspension when he failed the drug test, which found that he was using a banned performance-enhancing substance. When people knock Cologne because of his age, his weight, and the fact that he served a 50-game suspension, it's still hard to knock the performance he had in 2013 when the A's brought him back on a one-year deal. Cologne was 18-6 and six at 265 ERA with a whip of 1.166, the lowest whip since his Cy Young season of 2005. Outside of Max Scherzer, Hugh Darvish, and Hashashi Wakuma, the three finalists for the AL Cy Young Award, Cologne was the next best pitcher in the entire American League, over guys like Justin Verlander, Felix Hernandez, and John Lester. What Cologne provides for the Mets is something they need from a veteran pitcher, and that's innings. He has still not pitched 200-plus innings since 2005, but that should change, assuming he makes the remainder of his 2014 starts. His 41 wins since 2011 have improved his career record to 194 and 133 which is a 593 winning percentage. He also just passed the 2,000 strikeout mark for his career. I disagree with the thought of an all-young pitching rotation for any team. Remember the Giants used guys like Matt Morris, Barry Zito, and Randy Johnson when they had their young starting pitching in flux. The Mets of 1984 used pitchers like Mike Torres, Bruce Barrini, and Ed Lynch while they broke in their young pitchers. Even the 1969 Mets needed a 33-year-old Don Cardwell with the likes of guys like Seaver and Kuzman and Gentry. Say what you want about Cologne, but I think he's a decent pitcher, and he'll provide more ups than downs. 
If the Mets have an overload of starting pitching depth, which never seems to work out that way, Colon can certainly be moved to a pennant contending team. There will be a demand for him, regardless of his age. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. I did want to talk about another story of a pitcher who seems to have reestablished himself in the major leagues, and that's Seattle Mariners right-hand pitcher Chris Young. Going back several years to 2010, Young's season with the Padres consisted of his first start, which was six shutout innings of baseball. After that, he was placed on a disabled list with a torn anterior capsule muscle in his right shoulder. Rather than have the shoulder operated on, he chose to rehab, a decision that would likely have ended his season anyways. But the Padres had several injured pitchers and others on innings limits towards the end of the season, and Young was asked if he could make a couple starts to help out. He did his best, starting three times in September, pitching four innings, five innings, and five innings respectively, giving up just two runs in a process, and winning the final start of the season. Now the Mets were hoping that he was back and able to pitch. He was slated to be the team's fifth starter in 2011 and looked pretty sharp through his first four starts. He was 1-0 with a 184 ERA, averaging six innings a start. This included a seven-shutout inning performance where he also had two hits at the plate against the Philadelphia Phillies. Unfortunately, that became the highlight of the season, one that was ended when it was discovered that the anterior capsule muscle in his shoulder was torn once again. This time, he opted for surgery, which ended his season, and the Mets were kind enough to bring him back on a minor league deal the following season. Remember, Johan Santana was going through the same operation, and it was Young who actually made a return in 2012. He pitched to a 4-9 record, a 4-13 ERA, and a slightly higher than career 1.348 whip. However, the fact that Young threw over 100 innings and made 20 starts was certainly a step, stepping stone for the right-hander. The Mets did not bring Young back for the 2013 season. Instead, he signed a minor league deal for the Washington Nationals, had a terrible run, 1-2, and 788 ERA, pitching for AAA Syracuse. It seemed like he was just about finished. The Nationals brought him in on a minor league deal this year, and when it was determined that he would not make the Nationals and there was not even a spot in the AAA rotation for him, he was given his release on March 25th. Two days later, the Mariners came calling with injuries to starters Hashashi Iwakuma and Taiwan Walker. After two scoreless innings of relief on April 6th, Young made his first start of the season on April 13th, throwing six six scoreless innings, getting a no decision and a 3-0 loss to the Oakland Athletics. In his fourth start of the season, he got his first decision, a win at Yankee Stadium. Young had a spectacular month of May, pitching at least six innings in each of his six starts. For the season, he is 5-2 and two with a 327 ERA in 11 games, 10 starts. What did not work for Young in 2012 was a staple of his career. This season, his tendency is not to give up many hits, just 46 and 63 innings pitched. For his career, he's pitched 954 innings, giving up just 791 hits. Great to see Young having some success again in the major leagues. I got honestly questioned where it came from, though, as he seemed finished last year. But if he keeps it up, he should get some strong consideration for the AL Comeback Player of the Year award. Big thanks to Mike Ibui for being part of this program in the first hour. Second hour, a lot of guests from the Savannah Sand Nats as we break down their season and get into a couple other things going on in Major League Baseball. On the Passball Show, right here, brought to you by JohnPielli.com on MTRRadio.com. Rock over London. 
Tone Chicago. Wheaties, represent champions. 